0: You're
1: listening to the world at your fingertips. Hello and welcome to the world at your fingertips. Molly, how are we doing? Hello. Yeah, not too bad. Thanks. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Sipping on a beer this time, which makes a change for us, doesn't it? Yeah, this is like the first time in. I feel like many a week that we've not had coffee or tea so i'm proud of us
2: i don't know if we've ever done an episode not drinking caffeine
1: well i'm sat here after a long old day at work and first day back second day back i mean it's my it's my job it's my saturday job that i had when i was younger but it's great working at cafe doing coffees it's a good time but it's the first time the second is like this is the first weekend so the second day that I've been doing it with the, all the new social distancing measures in place and it's strange. And you but, need a
2: beer after that.
1: Yeah, I had to wear a face mask all day and it was really, really hot. So I feel like now I'm like chilling out. I've got my ice cold beer and I'm feeling, I'm feeling good.
2: Yeah, I've got mine in a, um, a stolen seven-man glass with uh, like a rich <laughs> Thief! I know. And he just stares at me and it makes me feel a little bit better about everything because... I remember
1: you stealing that. <laughs> I've got I've got multiple now. Really? Yeah.
2: Oh,
1: <laughs> I've decked I've out the cottage with just multiple
2: glasses of Lionel Richie's face on and I have no regrets about
1: it. So anyway, tell us about this week's topic, Kate.
2: So this week's topic is Global History from the Respective Impressions of a Migrant Family because we haven't come up with a better title than that at this moment in
1: time. <laughs> yeah. We, well... It's just like a, yeah, we, we really need to think of that title. Maybe as the, as the episode progresses, we can figure out a better way of phrasing that without so many words. History is written from the perspective of those who... Write it. Yeah, well, you're not wrong, Kate. <laughs> you're just not wrong. It's from the perspective of people who tend to have been triumphant in said histories or are in a privileged enough position to be able to write said history if that makes sense
2: I guess the truth is always slanted towards a certain point of view and so is history because that is just people's recollection of what happened in the past and therefore when you when you interpret it um as our guest does for her master's degree you're going to interpret it from a certain background and understand it from your own background as a scholar. And that, of course, is very different than if you're native to the country in which is written this history, or if you're your family or a migrant who have moved here from, from somewhere else.
1: Yeah, it's all really about kind of understanding history from your own cultural or native background and how that can adapt, whether that how that can adapt as Multiculturalism increases in the world and migration increases. So, I found a stat from UN.org, so the literal United Nations, saying that the number of international migrants worldwide reached 272 million in 2019 that just kind of shows how migration has grown over the years and how there have sort of there have been moments in history where there have been there's been mass migration that has shaped and different culture that exists today and multiculturalism that exists today and also can can shape how people adjust to culture cultures or how cultural maintenance takes place how the, how the world has changed due to this i think is really important and interesting when considering different cultural perspectives and how they're personally interpreted through lived experience
2: like reading that fact i'm not really sure how the un i know obviously it's the united nations but how do they track migration because are they talking about it how are they meant to track you know accurate migration say in china or something
1: yeah i'm not really sure because i think that you know there is there are also different types of migration something that we will refer to later is kind of the definition of migrant and what that because what, uh, i don't know all of the legal ins and outs of migration and how it works and i don't know enough about it for them to have collected that data because talking about migration and the difference between migration migrants and refugees yeah, I agree. I don't know how they've reached. I don't know the legal points of in which they could have reached those statistics, and how how they can possibly track all the migration that goes on in the world. So, I mean, I assume they're they're accurate, but I just yeah, I just I'd be interested to know.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, I went straight for China, and I think that says. Well, I just know um, Jenny st- focuses a lot on China, so I think that's why it popped into my head, but. I'm t- talking more just like I just, well, see is the movement of people necessarily always migration, and is migration only something that happens once because I think if you move to a different country with a strong cultural and insular culture and just basically pick up and move, you don't interact, you don't you don't blend and um like a, amalgamate your own culture with that of the country you're visiting are those children then, you know, not also having a similar perspective on history and as strong as the first generation migrant family that came is what I'm trying to get at is you're you're saying migration is happening once, but in terms of what we're talking about with the perspective on history and the link to migration that that has, it's not based on the migration of one generation, but the like amalgamation of, whether they basically assimilate to the culture which they move on. If they don't, then perhaps the children will have as strong as a cultural
1: identity to the to the culture they, the parents move from. You, I completely agree with you. I definitely think that migration is something that's ongoing and it's something that um, will continue to be ongoing. Whether that's increasing or not, well, clearly it's increasing in numbers of people who are migrating, but whether it's increasing in volume as years go on, I'm not sure. And
2: whether, But no, I completely agree
1: about... Yeah. And whether globalisation reduces that impact
2: of moving to a different country. Because within your own country, you can have influences from many nations around the world. And whether it's... We're thinking of migration and cultural perspective coming from territorial location. When in a globalised world, is it not more about access to information, say, on the internet? So someone in rural russia might have a very different access to information than i have and therefore that would change their perspective on history because they don't have it so is it based on migration or is it the more the personal access to information like how much is a cultural perspective learned and how much is it bred from migration of your family to a different country
1: yeah, completely. I think, and I think that's uh, that's changing a lot with greater access to resources. For example, the internet, you're able to have access to so much more than, say, people two hundred years ago could have. So, I think, yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, and I think it's an interesting discussion, particularly in the current context uh, of, uh, so what's been going on in the news this week about Hong Kong, and in both Australia and the UK, uh, the um, both Australian and UK governments are, I actually, I'm not, I think it's being confirmed in the UK, but in Australia, it's still sort of ongoing, but confirming that um, residents of Hong Kong can remain in each country, um, if they would like to, or they have visas to remain in each country for either a certain amount of time or indefinitely. I think in Australia, it's still a certain amount of time, essentially, Avoid staying in Hong Kong to become a part of China and be under Chinese rule, um, uh, due to I think the na- the national security laws that are now being implemented in Hong Kong from China. So that's yeah. interesting, and that and uh, that's something you know that is being written as part of history, and people will remember that and will remember. And you know we've we've had an episode talking about nationhood and, and about Hong Kong and the the cultural tension and the crisis in national identity that that nation has so I think it'll be very interesting to see as time goes on what happens in that particular example of what could be what could what could end up being mass migration and how perhaps that will impact the understanding of global history from a cultural perspective in terms of nah, that doesn't make sense mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> no I guess yes, that, that's like a super good example of what I was saying they're migrating to preserve the culture that they currently have and so Ooh. That's the link with, yeah. I was always thinking as I was looking into this more, like migrant families moving and assimilating and how that changes the cultural perspective. But if yeah. you're migrating to preserve your culture, that will, won't lead to assimilation or to a lesser degree because right. people yes. who are from Hong Kong who are moving want to move to preserve you know, this Hong Kong culture that they have rather than um, abide by the laws that are being um, put on them by China.
1: Yeah, completely. And I suppose that's why, you know, lots of... There are definitely areas in each country that are known for being inhabited by people from a particular nation. For example, I mean, this is a really sort of obvious example, but I think less so in London. But, like, there are places in other countries where Chinatown is much more a place where it's not so commercial and it's actually somewhere where lots of um, Chinese people actually live. Um, I know in London, uh, New Malden that's, like, known to be an area populated by a lot of South Korean people, and I think, you know, so then it's it's bringing their culture to certain, like, suburbs, I guess, of, of, like, cities, perhaps, or certain areas of a country, which I think is, like, really interesting, and I think it's also, I I see it as, like, something that's really, really positive, that people are migrating to countries like the UK or, or Australia, and they are able to preserve their culture and continue businesses through their through their culture through their language and it remains they are able to preserve it but also are able to integrate within culture of of the other country does that make sense
2: yeah definitely like when i when i lived in frankfurt for a year obviously i worked um, as an english teacher and nanny for korean families and they have a massive massive uh, south korean population in frankfurt and when you visit their houses they all live in the in the same like you said suburb of frankfurt and they have like supermarkets laundrettes everything that they need it's like a a self self-serving microcosm of like a completely independent sector that almost they don't need to interact with wider culture but of course they do but i mm. i also think do you know the term glocalization uh, no, I don't.
0: Yeah, so... What is,
2: is globalisation? So, obviously, it sounds very similar to globalisation. It comes as a result of that, but it started as um, a term for business uh, from Japan, I think, and then Germany, but it only reached uh, English-speaking companies, really, in the 1990s, and it got started to be applied to, like, cultural studies and, like, across industries. Now it's in media studies, so this is a term I use a lot um, in my degree, And it's basically the balance between universalizing, which is what globalization does. So it brings people's cultures around, but it tends to around the world, but it tends to homogenize them and make them non-specific. So it would say like, you know, there's Korean subcultures in major cities in Europe, but it leaves like the particular, it doesn't particularize between say, a subculture in Frankfurt to London. And so that loses some of the specificity that so globalization is finding the balance between so it's specificity on a global scale, which I think is what a topic like this requires. It's when we're talking about migrant families, obviously, we can come at everything that we're going to be discussing about from every different angle. And you know, I think this is something we have to be aware of in this episode, is that we're coming from Jenny's experience specifically within the UK. But when you're discussing global history and you're discussing globalization, obviously everyone has a very different understanding. So um not that there's room for error, but there's we have to remain specific to our own experiences and to Jenny's experiences specifically.
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. And I think that leads perfectly into introducing our guest this week, Jenny Paliuka. Hey Jenny. Hello. Hello, welcome to our podcast
0: how are Thanks you having me i'm good how are you guys
1: yeah good,
0: good. <laughs> yeah i must say
2: like evening recordings are, are way more fun i'm just gonna pull that out there
1: yeah oh we were just saying earlier how we do, always do morning recordings jenny so this is like yeah. oh do you? this is nice yeah <laughs> we've got a drink the sun is over the Relax. hill i don't even it's that i'm not even sure if that's a saying but i'm gonna keep saying it the sun <laughs> is over the hill you make it make fetch happen
2: molly make f- do it <laughs>
1: make fetch happen um, so on that note, Jenny, what are you drinking tonight? Well,
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna open it now and have a nice, <gasps> oh, uh, lovely summer. Oh my god! It is a um, it's one of those hard seltzer drinks. So it's like a lime-flavored alcoholic sparkling water. Oh Very yeah. into those at the moment. Very snazzy. Yeah, it's snazzy. Yeah,
2: I just realised though, I'm drinking and Moretti, which is. Italian.
0: Oh, hey. I'm so on brand.
2: But speaking of Italian beer Jenny, let's hear more about you
0: and your background and your studies and just tell me everything. Oh okay, um, where to begin? So I was born in, no I'm not gonna do that. Um, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so my name is Jenny, I am just coming to the end of doing my master's degree um, at Oxford in Global and Imperial History Ooh, um this ooh. year I've kind of specialized in Chinese history which has been very interesting and challenging but rewarding. Um what else would you like to know? Um so what what made you choose
1: Chinese history in particular?
0: Um so also i got a degree from the University of Southampton um great university. Ooh, uh, in modern history and politics. Um so I did a module on Chinese history then, Did literally like one random module in my final year and loved it. And the tutor there, um, she went to Oxford and I kind of said, I'm thinking about doing a masters, thought about applying to Oxford, but you know, it's the big league, so quite intimidating. And she was like really helpful. She wrote me a really nice reference, um, helped like really encouraged me. So it really does make a difference when you have like one of those lecturers or tutors that really inspires you and encourages you um so yeah it's kind of down to her so oh Oh,
1: amazing that's That's really nice It's been a nice
0: journey ever since and she came and did a talk at oxford this year and i went to like see her talk and it was so lovely and then like we had a really nice chat for like half an hour afterwards oh that's that's so nice literally my favorite person (laughs) oh my gosh well that is that
1: is amazing and that's like it's so cool that i love stories like that when a lecturer or a teacher maybe even at school or university can inspire you to then go on to do, well, to be where you are now, finishing your master's at Oxford, that's insane.
0: Yep, Dr. Forster, she's very cool, check out her work. Amazing, <laughs> shout out. To. Yeah. So you're,
2: you're from Oxford as well, Jenny, aren't you? You've been living I with your, your family whilst doing your master's.
0: Yes, so obviously master's degrees are very expensive, um, mm. even more so when you are at Oxford. So I've been living at home for the year, which has been a, an adjustment. Yeah. Um, so tell yeah, us a bit but, about your, your family. Yeah. So my family, um, my dad is Italian, hence my last name, which is an Italian last name. Um, it translates as into the word, Hey, so I reckon I come from a line of farmers. Interesting fact. <laughs> um, and then my mum, she's half English, half Scottish. So yeah, I kind of like to think that I'm only a quarter English. So with all the uh Brexit and everything, I'm like I'm not really part of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. I'm like I'm fair more enough. European than I am English. <laughs> so tell us a bit about your Italian
1: family background and um your dad and
0: Yeah, so my um my grandparents migrated to this country back in I think it was like nineteen sixty um they came from a really small village basically in the middle of nowhere um is up the side of a mountain in the south of italy migrated here with not very much money not very much belongings and yeah they wanted a new life for them and they had two kids at that point my aunt and uncle and then a couple of years later my dad was born in this country but he's always kind of seen himself more as part of that first gen migrated over here type um, bubble if that makes sense because often you know you refer to people are they first gen migrants or second gen migrants whatever it is so he kind of sees himself more in that group and they lived in an Italian community up north in Bury. so he speaks English with a northern accent which is quite confusing um, yeah. <laughs> when you meet him because you think he's going to sound really Italian but he's got a Manchester accent. Amazing. I love that. So yeah but,
2: but like how do you think that because obviously he brought the Italian culture very strongly to you because he's kept hold of it so well. How do you <laughs> think that impacted your identification with Italy and Italian, your Italian heritage?
0: It's been like something that I think has taken a lot of figuring out because obviously, especially like even with my name. So I have like an English first name, but an Italian second name. And actually, the reason why, because I've spoken to this about my mum kind of being, like, well, why did you choose that? You know, why did you give me an English name? And she said, well, because we knew we were going to be living in England. We wanted to make it a bit easier for you because no one would ever be able to spell your last name, which is obviously quite, in some ways, upsetting when you hear that, because there is obviously a big stigma in English culture about not wanting to learn foreign languages, not liking foreign languages, not, you know, there is... A massive um problem in you know recruiting foreign languages teachers in this country and things like that um but actually all of our names I've got two brothers all of our names translate between English and Italian so we can use them however we want obviously apart from the surname so if I wanted to you know have an Italian name I could which is quite nice I think um but again it's hard because you kind of trying to marry two cultures together. And sometimes it works great and sometimes it doesn't. So with language, for example, it's something that I've always really struggled with. Um, so I apparently spoke great Italian when I was a kid because for a few years, my grandparents lived with us. Um, so they spoke like only spoke Italian to me. I was quite good at it then. And now I understand Italian really well. I can read it quite well, but I struggle speaking it. So that's always been quite difficult.
2: Yeah, so obviously, Jenny, you talked about discussing, understanding your own personal history and almost for, forging your own understanding of that based on how you experience everyday life with your um, multinationality family. But do you think that's why you got into history? Like understand Because you've had to consciously understand it for yourself and no one's been telling you how to live life, You, you like you say, with an English first name, Italian last name, in a culture that doesn't like to... Um, accept that as easily do you think that's what got you into studying history and understanding history a bit more
0: yeah I mean it's maybe like a part of it I mean to be honest history was just the one subject that I was really good at at school (laughs) (laughs) but I think the fact that I've obviously carried on with it for so long to the fact that I'm now doing a master's in it um, definitely like has shaped the way that I write my own historical essays and you know conduct my own inquiries into history now because um, often, you know, there is this whole stigma, can, you know, people from different cultures, are you allowed to study someone else's culture? Can you only study your own culture? There is a lot of like discussion in history of, you know, should people from the West be studying um, cultures from around the world, is that okay, I'll be gonna taint that kind of historical inquiry with our own Western perspectives. And I actually even did a module in Italian history at Southampton, but I really just didn't like it, which is kind of weird. I think because I am really interested in Italian history, but it kind of has to be on my terms, which is kind of weird.
2: Assumed appropriation that comes along with um, like a global hierarchy of where people position Western, like a lot of the time above Asian, and that. automatically in education sort of assumes some sort of appropriation that you're not getting all of it because you're 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 learning on it based on the perspectives of this hierarchy of you know white privilege I guess we can yeah that's a whole other thing (laughs) that you can listen to in previous episodes but (laughs) but I know what you mean with sort of you you need to learn how to study history and another culture it's almost like a skill in itself being able to come as a blank slate and um come to a culture if you can which is what we're basically talking about can you come to studying a culture without we're leaving behind your own um upbringing your own cultural perspective
0: yeah exactly i mean even with um doing this chinese history stuff that i've been doing this year so i even found out that um so there's a part of one of the really big key events in um the kind of modern chinese history is known as the boxer rebellion which was um part of the kind of imperial history of china where britain wasn't very nice to china you know <laughs> spoiler alert um britain's the bad guy <laughs> um, and um in the boxer rebellion there were these british merchant ships which would hose down the chinese people that were trying to rebel against them And I've actually found out that why I think it's my great-great-grandfather was on one of those ships.
2: Wow, yeah. And then I was like,
0: ah, okay, this is something I need to deal with both kind of as a historian, but also as my own heritage, you know, what does that mean? And because I found this story out for my granddad and he tells it really proudly, like, you know, all your great great grandfather, he was there at the Boxer Rebellion, he defended the British interests. And I'm like, mm, yeah, but what, what was the consequence of that? How did that then impact what's happened in China since then? What did that actually mean for the people in China at the time? Like all these questions that, that's like my historical brain coming through trying to deal with what does this actually mean for me and then again that's like trying to deal with the English side of my family let alone the Italian side and it's oh it can get quite confusing in my brain.
2: Yeah definitely I guess that's removing some of the the emotion from the the, 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 the study of history but I always find I feel the same thing because obviously a lot of times um, Romany are just edited out of yeah. history, um, as in most of the times, 99% of the time, in yeah. my opinion. And one of my great-great-grandfather's was actually um, tricked by the British government into signing uh, what they said was a three-year commission in the army, because he, but because he couldn't read or write, he just signed an X, and it was actually... They shipped him to India, and so he wasn't in the UK at all, and he couldn't get back, obviously, because, you know, yeah. travellers don't leave their village, never mind about going to India. But like stuff like that, learning yeah. stuff from a personal, the main way I learn about history is through family tales because it's not written down a lot of the time. So it comes with a degree of emotion and a, and a degree of well lack of objectivity almost, which is just unavoidable because we don't have the comparison between written history uh, from official, I say in inverted commas, sources versus the personal. But you've obviously experienced that, like you said, with you have the written accounts which are official from government documents and historical um, primary sources, but you've also got the the personal anecdotes from that have been passed through your family. So that's interesting that you get to compare the two.
0: Yeah, it definitely is. And, you know, with everything that's been happening recently, there have been so many questions as to why... You know the curriculum is so kind of inadequate. It leaves so much out. Why are we not talk about, you know, Romany Gypsies? Because I'm not an expert, or I Preach. don't know that much. But I've, you know, <laughs> heard a little bits and there, and I've come across them before in my own work about their involvement with Europe and kind of how they've migrated across the continent and. What kind of cultural heritage we've learnt from them? Because there is there is a lot of things people don't realise, mm, exactly. especially you know Second World War stuff, you know, which is spouted to us a lot as kids. You know, in like year eight, year nine history, we really don't hear the side of the story from other perspectives. We just only really hear, you know, this these people were in the Allies, these people were against the Allies, like that's how it was fought from our perspective. You don't hear at all about, you know rebellions within Germany or within Italy or whatever it was um, and how what their role in the war was for example.
1: Yeah absolutely I think that's such a point of the whole the understanding of history through personal interpretation as from lived experience and so going back to what Kate and I discussed earlier about how history is written from the perspective of those who we're in a position to write it, whether that be like a more privileged position to write it, whether that be in the victorious position to write it. So the fact that we learn about world, particularly in the UK, we're learning about World War One and World War 2 they're so key in the curriculum, probably because we were, we the country, the nation won that war. And there is such a lack of, there's a lack of an acknowledgement for so many parts of World War Two, in particular, I think, Um, where, where there were, there was such, such atrocities took place. And I think that it's really, really limiting not being able to learn about that. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that I learned about was from word of mouth, from, from personal anecdotes, whether that be from Kate, uh, in terms of Romany history, or I actually went to Auschwitz early, in early 2019. And learning about the holocaust in a way that i obviously had never learned about it before and i mean that's probably one of the most thorough and probably harrowing educational experiences i've ever had and you know you realize that it wasn't there was it wasn't just the jewish community that were impacted whilst they were impacted obviously hugely but there were lots of other uh, ethnic minority groups, or there were um, lots of different nationalities. So I know that, for example, I mean this is kind of going on a tangent here, talking about the Holocaust in World War II but that uh, I know that the Polish uh, Polish academics, in particularly from the University of Krakow, were they were all gathered uh, in Krakow one night by I don't think by Nazi generals. and they were told that they were just going to discuss the curriculum but actually when they all gathered and started the meeting they were essentially captured and and put on trains and taken to concentration camps so that's something I didn't know before going there and finding out myself and that just isn't just such a prime example of something that you don't learn when you're Going through the education system in the UK, yeah, which I think is very interesting.
2: Yeah, I think also we we you sort of mentioned by the victors, but I think the actual privilege of being able to write is so underestimated because obviously yeah. you you spoke about you know the Holocaust and that was a major problem with the recording of um Romney, romance into people who didn't have the ability to read and write. Uh, and therefore they couldn't submit their own testimonies to written history, only passed down orally, and that really barred them from being, you know, written in textbooks, taught in the same way as as Jewish history, and that's the same, still a mass problem today. There's people with such little education, um, and that is a major problem, I think, like for, for us as Westerners. I mean, not all of us, obviously, but we assume that people have... The ability and the education to engage with a globalized world where we can share information, but so much of the world is either well uneducated, lacking electricity, not really engaging with this global discussion on history, and therefore, by a byproduct of that is obviously it's very it's limited what we 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 hear and what we understand. Um Jenny, you probably know way more about that than me. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the main problems is, is that even in the educated Western world, or whatever you want to call it, global history, you know, there are Western history, there's like British history, American history, European history, these are the main strands that most people study in higher education, the rest of the world is lumped together under the term global history which automatically imposes Ugh. a hierarchy saying that British, American, European history, these are the ones that we're most interested in. These are the courses we've got the most places on. These are the tutors that we've got the most um, like pay for, whatever it is. The rest of the world, you if you want to study that, you're the minority. And that is something that has like really um, annoyed me this year, like doing this master's, because on my course, there are 14 places for global history. For the other history strand and when you apply you they say if you're interested in western european american british apply for history if you're interested in anything else go for global on the other history <laughs> strand there's 60 places what? So 60 yeah. versus 14 and it's, it's just like why <laughs> you're automatically saying that western european british american that that's the important history right yeah, there privileged and it's history. like well the other globe like the rest of the world what about them you know
2: which is crazy. Yeah, me. I mean, that's such like typical othering though, which you like, yeah. we've yeah. known about that like forever. I can't even remember when Edward Said wrote Orientalism, but literally <laughs> the things he describes in that are like so similar to things that still happen today. Which is so interesting when you talk a sort of about industrialization and where that came we hear about the european industrial revolution but what about the chinese industrial revolution and their industry and how that impacted british industry or people don't exist europe doesn't exist in a vacuum same as america doesn't but it's almost i don't think we gain anything from you know um whitewashing history obviously but i guess that leads us good good leads us good (laughs) that leads us well on to hong kong and i guess like we, we mentioned before in the intro, this um, migration situation that Australia have opened up to um, Hong Kong citizens. We sort of discussed whether assimilation is like not likely to occur because that sounds like, you know, we're, we're controlling it. But like, tell me more about assimilation and how you understand that in
1: terms of, of history and, oh, I don't know. Tag, Molly, you're it. I'm, well, I'm thinking what Kate is trying to guess at is, so talking about assimilation within how bring, like preserving culture or abiding by the cultural boundaries in which that said country Operates. exists. Yeah. Yeah. So this migration, that is imminent, Basically, I guess. We're, we're seeing it happen
2: right now, what I guess you um, have studied a lot in terms of when a mass migration occurs and the influence that has on the receiving country and the leaving country but we're literally this is something that's going to be happening from with Hong Kongers going to Australia or going to Britain like I just find it so interesting that we're literally potentially seeing a period in history that could change their identity could make a whole like microcosm of Hong Kong within Australia I just think that's so interesting
0: well the interesting thing is is that that's already happened so obviously when Hong Kong was handed over back to China in 1997, what my research has been this year is how that build up to the handover date. So the 1980s, the 1990s, what the migration figures were then. And a huge, huge number of Hong Kong people migrated in the 1980s and the 1990s to Australia. So the top three countries were Canada, um the united states and australia australia was the third most popular destination for the hong kongese who were migrating in the 1980s and the 1990s because of fear of handover the fear of being handed back to the chinese communist party and not knowing what their future would look like Hmm. so this has happened i think it's really
1: interesting that the uk is not part of that list considering the UK well, were those that a were lot in of reasons
0: for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm interested to know them honestly
1: I think I because I think that's obviously significant
0: yeah so basically um, what the reason why I chose to look at Australia rather than Canada or the US for example was because of the geographical proximity and the fact that Australia had a stake in the Asia-Pacific region um, you kind of see like during the Eighties and nineties, Australia had kind of they'd got rid of those discriminatory white Australia policies by this point, which is what makes them really interesting. Um, and they were kind of emerging; they were pushing away from Britain. They didn't want to be associated with that imperialism story anymore. They wanted to be their own kind of global identity in the Asia Pacific region, um, and that's what they were doing. And that's what made um, them open up their borders to Hong Kong migrants in this period, um, and also a lot of. Um, Vietnamese and Korean migrants had come over to Australia just before this. Um, so obviously, because Korea and Vietnam were very affected by war in the 50s, 60s, and um, early 70s. So this had already kind of happened. Australia was kind of realizing what, what can, we need to step up, we need to lead this region, we need to start kind of opening our borders, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, Whereas the British were following a decolonization policy. Um, so of mm. course Kate you've done a lot of decolonisation yeah. research yourself um, you know how quite often the imperial power isn't doing it for the colony itself they're doing it for their own interests it's because they can't afford to run the colony anymore because of, in the, Hong, the case of Hong Kong legally they had to return Hong Kong to China it was in the new treaties um, and basically Britain closed the borders to Hong Kong migrants they removed the British citizenship rights that Hong Kong passport holders had. But like,
2: what do you think about Australia being obviously predominantly white country, being like, we need to to have a significant influence in this region? I don't know. I don't really understand. I don't know anything about Australian history, to be honest. Well, I can
0: um, give you a quick overview, if you like. History lesson history. from Jenny. History yeah, lesson on. from Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> um, OK, so Australia... Obviously, you know, it was um, annexed by Britain in 1788, uh, but they were given almost complete settler autonomy in by the 1850s. So, because it was a lot of white British people going over, um, they, those people were allowed to run the country themselves. Let's obviously, you know, a- acknowledge the fact that what the British did to the Aboriginal populations was horrific, but that's kind of another story for another day, um, and to get into that would be a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, so. Technically, Australia has been independent to Britain for a really long time, but Britain held this kind of Commonwealth influence over them. So throughout the 20th century, various acts were passed through Westminster and the Australian government, granting different forms of imperial independence. So these were known as the Seven Australian Acts. So by 1986, the Australia Act enabled Australian law to be fully independent from the British parliaments and courts. This kind of signified the end of British imperialism in Australia. This was a really big moment when they basically abandoned Australia during the Second World War. They said, we can't protect you from the Japanese. You're left to yourselves. Australia took that, you know, quite hard, and they wanted their full independence. Um, So that's in some ways good, in some ways bad, has its own kind of debate. You have some really extreme Australian historians, like Geoffrey Blaney, who believe that... um, Australia was very much for the white Australian um, groups and said that you should restrict Asian migrants etc then you've got more liberal historians like James Jupp who disagrees and says that the white Australia policy and its inherent racism and the end of that showed that Australia had decided that they needed to like you know cultivate good working relationships with their their neighbors Um, Mm. and they didn't want to be that old kind of part of that imperial empire kind of story anymore so that's kind of does that answer your kind of question about Australian history
2: definitely I mean it makes sense when you're operating completely on the other side of the world to to not operate in the same ideological infrastructure as Britain even though you know, that's where your cultural history comes from. Uh, of course, when I say Australians, I, I don't mean Indigenous people. I mean this, as you said, this um, mass migration from to Australia.
0: So, just like a little bit more background to go back to what you asked before about how um, Britain just kind of closed the borders. So, some of the research I found in the archives, because Britain did this, so it's un- it was under the, um, the 1981 Nationality Act, um, which was and I quote, to make fresh provision about citizenship and nationality. So basically discriminated against loads of citizens from the colonies and said, you're not allowed to come here. You don't have working rights. You won't be entitled to citizenship rights anymore. Mm. Um, and oh because of this, many other European countries kind of followed suit. They said, why should we give um, citizenship rights if Britain isn't? Right. Whereas yeah. that's, that's why I like looking at Australia, because Australia, in some ways... I mean, they're not innocent, but they very much stepped up to the plate and kind of took a bit of control and changed their visa policies and everything to enable Hong Kong migrants to come. And kind of, you know, in that really uncertain time, they had no idea what was going to happen in 1997. And as we can see, it's not been a great journey ever since yeah absolutely yeah, yeah i think it's very interesting
1: to as well be able to have like that perspective now looking back at this history particularly sort of the handover in 1997 and that that whole that promise that they made for 50 years and we're here now in 2020 and china very much what their hold on hong kong and it absolutely hasn't been 50 years yet so yeah. i think it's interesting that yeah both the uk and australia have sort of stood up to say, Well, you're you're welcome here and you have we can allow visas for this amount of time to stay here or indefinite amount of time to stay here which is interesting if you're comparing that to back in was it ninety seven where oh no, no was it in the eighties. Sorry, yeah, in the eighties ninety,
0: so the build up to ninety
1: seven. Right. So back back in the build up to nineteen ninety seven where Australia said that anyway and the UK were like, nope, no. Yeah. Not here, but now it's completely different, and so I don't know whether that's just they've changed their mind from embarrassment, or whether it be um, the the nature of multiculturalism has changed for the better, which I hope because I mean, by if that was what this nationality act of 1981, that's that was not that long ago, no. uh, what forty <laughs> years ago.
2: I think that's, so. We spoke about the media's influence on that kind of thing, though, like imagine the sort of tolerance and this is what it feeds into with the sharing of information like we've seen with the black lives matter movement all the all the things that are going on there's not the case of things going under the radar anymore and people will have the platform individually to speak against things and so the government doesn't have a lack of accountability i think anyway that it had maybe in in the 80s with it being from the individual citizen also jenny do you think because obviously you've you studied migration quite a lot. Do you think that you come to that with a particular point of view because you're from a migrant family living in the UK? Do you think that influences you?
0: Yeah, so I spent quite a lot of time looking at the reasons why people might like chose to migrate, um, which kind of hasn't made it into my final project, which is quite sad, but, you know, you've got to make those cuts for the word count. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, like when I was kind of reading stories, like first-hand accounts of why people chose to migrate back in the 1980s and 90s from Hong Kong, and it was because of that fear, the uncertainty, the not knowing how people were going to make their income, um, fear of human rights being taken away from them. It did kind of make me reflect and think, you know, my grandparents made that decision. What was it that motivated them? I mean, they're not alive anymore, so I can't ask them, which is such a shame, but... You know, back in the 60s, Italy was in an economic crisis. Still hadn't really recovered from the Second World War. So I'm guessing it was a lot of the same kind of motivations: economic, political, social, whatever you want to group it into. Um, but ultimately, fear and trying to seek a new, more stable life.
2: I mean, I don't know how like whether you do, Jenny, but I I'm wondering whether because you've studied the history of immigration so much in over your academic career. I'm wondering if you you want to be going into something in that when you when you join a job, whether you're you want to be working not only with studying the history but in how that can be applied to the future at
0: all. What I'm kind of going into next year isn't really to do with that, but it's definitely something that I think I want to revisit at some point. Like I'm still kind of um undecided whether or not I want to do a PhD, which I might do in the future, who knows. But I think if I did one, it would definitely want to be around migration history. I kind of have found this niche within history, which has really kind of appealed to me. And I found it really interesting. And I think... There's still so much we don't know about the movement of people. Human life is has been the movement of people, you know. You can track how people moved and why people moved back centuries. That's how we have our culture today. And people don't always like to think about that. You have these things like Brexit, and it's like, oh, you know, I'm British, I wanna vote Brexit. Are you British? you're probably not you probably come from like your family migrated from somewhere there is no like, in, in that aspect what is nationality because does it really exist yeah like, i agree
2: and i think even british culture in itself is made up from so many elements brought in from uh, the empire and from yeah. influence from other European countries that also had empires in, in various places as well. So I think just as we have a free flow of information, before there was a, a flow of people that contributed to building a culture that is Britain today. And I think that's amazing, especially when we're talking about, um, you know, immigration is such a inflammatory word in, in politics and in cultural uh, understanding and national consciousness of British people. I don't know whether we want to go into sort of the whole problem with understanding and the connotations
1: of being a migrant. I think it's something that's definitely something that has developed to have A more negative connotation. Uh, In some of the research I found, Alexander Betts, who's director of the Refugee Studies Centre at Oxford University, said that migrant needs to have a neutral connotation. It says nothing about their entitlement to cross that border or whether they should be, but some people believe that the world has recently developed a sour note. It is being used to mean not a refugee. So I don't know what you think about that, but if we're talking about the cultural perspective and how that has developed through migration and the ongoing migration that continues and will continue across the world, I think it's very sad that this has developed. I don't know whether that has developed because of some of the legislation that has been introduced, whether that be back in the 80s with the Nationality Act within the UK, or it's there are so many different um, political aspects that impact the, the national understanding of the word migration, or the term migration. And I kind of wanted to get a bit of insight from you, Jenny, on what you think about that.
0: So I think language is such a complicated issue anyway. Um, generally, when I have been writing my thesis, I've used the word migrant as... A kind of overarching term meaning the movement of people from one territory to another I've used the word immigrant when referring to the movement of person into another country um usually coming to live there permanently and then there is also the word emigrant so and that generally refers to the action of a person leaving their home country to go and live in another and I think yeah. when you look at those three words so migrant immigrant emigrant um like kind of subjectively, without thinking about the negative connotations that the word immigrant has, then it kind of makes sense as to why we would distinguish from going into another country and leaving a country. Mm. Because that, you know, then you kind of get into the motivations of why you've chosen to go to that country, rather than why you've chosen to leave your country they're very different motivations and then obviously you have like the refugee word which is now often referred to as people who are leaving fleeing war-torn countries because of violence or whatever and they don't have that choice they don't have the immigrant choice they can't choose where to go they are just fleeing from danger and people don't understand that
2: yeah definitely I think as well, we sort of we sort of see immigrants coming to the UK. I mean, I use we broadly, not just in the British national consciousness, but this is also applicable to many countries around the world. It's not just Britain, but we see immigrants coming into the country sometimes as only subjects coming in that will take away from the national experience. Whereas we see when, say, a British person goes abroad, and they emigrate to a different country, we see them as adding something rather than subtracting something. So there is the ingrained sort of experience of privilege. This comes very powerfully with Britain as a country in particular. But say when I lived abroad for a year, you know, it was seen as adding something. But when an international student comes to the UK, they don't necessarily integrate with domestic students as well. Like I know this from being president of ESN. Domestic students don't always want to integrate with international students visiting because it's a different sort of foreigner dynamic than when I was a foreigner living in Germany and living in Frankfurt. I think that just goes into the connotations of the word, but that is from a very deep cultural history that like you said, feeds into empirical history from not understanding anti-colonial movements in former colonies and stuff like that. But I just want to say, Jenny, let's wrap up but thank you
1: so much for the best history lesson I've ever had oh my gosh yeah honestly I've just been listening to you <laughs> listening to you in awe like I feel like I've <laughs> i just been sat here like this is amazing and I'm actually just to add to your point Kate I think you're, you're completely right and I, I think there's something quite sad about that and it's, i don't know whether this is me being optimistic but i really hope that that changes or that is sort of beginning to change in having things like esn and different groups or organizations like that that are sort of aiming to integrate students like international students with domestic students i hope that that is... i think it's
2: a it's going to be a very very slow process that's going to be based in education which is happening a lot at the university level across europe and across internationally uh, around the world but We need to feed into primary school children, to secondary school children. I mean, this is like something I'm very, very passionate about. And if anyone listening wants to get involved with that, then I encourage you to, if you're at university, join your local ESN section. If not, ESN UK is across the UK and doing initiatives trying to to help school children develop a global mindset and promote internationalisation at home. Because I think this is so important just for diversity training in terms of the most basic basic interactions with anyone you meet because as we said the whole point of this podcast is showing that we each have a personal understanding based on our cultural histories of history and and through history present day you know culture because that is all learned behavior from a global history and i think i think jenny's right your thesis sounds like you're absolutely hitting the nail on the head and i can't i hope i can read it after you finished it
0: (laughs) (laughs) you definitely can um but yeah thanks so much for having me on the show guys i really enjoyed it and kate you're absolutely right and it sounds like esn has taken all the right steps to try and um, deal with some of these really hard migration (laughs) issues and yeah it's also to be conscious about in our day-to-day lives
2: definitely thank you so much for joining us jenny and thank you everyone for listening